Welcome to Everyday Oral Surgery, Surgeon's Talking Shop. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will be hearing surgeons discussing ways to improve the everyday practice of oral surgery. The ultimate goal of this podcast is to evaluate every aspect that a surgeon could improve in order to create a better experience for patients, staff, and the surgeon himself or herself. The vast majority of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions. The techniques and methods discussed are only meant to provoke thought and should be supplemented with personal research into the clinically reviewed and approved studies prior to making changes to one's way of practice. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. So today we are interviewing Dr. Oli Jensen. He is an oral and maxillofacial surgeon who has practiced in Denver, Colorado. Well, first of all, I'll say thanks for coming on the episode. We really appreciate having you. Sure. I was wondering if you could give us a brief background of your training and your practice over the years and some of that stuff. My training is I went through the school of hard knocks. <laughs> okay. So, you know, it's interesting. I went to the University of Michigan. Very, very tough program and still probably the top program in the country. They do 1,300 major surgeries a year. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, just a, a beautiful place to, to train. But I will say this, that when I got out of school, within about a year, maybe two, I was doing completely different things than what I was trained to do. Oh, really? And so in a sense, I had to go to the school of hard knocks, figure it out myself. Yeah. What happened to me in, my, in that period of time was I never did a single implant in training. And yet that became my default mechanism for surgery for most of my career is, is a dental implant. So I had to learn it on the fly and uh, on my own and didn't get it in the university training program. Wow, that's amazing. So where did you learn it and how did you first get going? Well, being Norwegian and having an affinity to Scandinavia, I became associated with the Gothenburg and the, and the doctors out of Sweden that began the Brandenburg system. And so I truly learned from Brandenburg himself and Ulf Lekholm and Torsten Gempt. Uh, Torsten Gempt, people might not know, was the prosthodontist at the Brandenburg Clinic. Okay. And he and I in Colorado here, we taught the uh, course for implants for Nobel, Nobel Pharma at the time, for 10 years. Wow. I learned from the cradle of where it all started. And when I did implants here in Colorado, there wasn't nobody else that had a kit, with the exception of Bob Schauhorn, Robert Schauhorn, the periodontist. He was a colleague of mine, very, very famous doctor. And so I want to give a shout out to him. Otherwise, there wasn't a single doctor that was interested in implants, and so we had to kind of learn on our own. Wow, that's amazing. And so you've practiced where in your career? Believe it or not, I started out as a cancer surgeon in downtown Denver. Okay. And I was in a group of uh, a neurosurgeon, an ENT surgeon, and two plastic surgeons. And I would get involved with the oral maxillofacial reconstruction part of it. Okay. 
Did you practice in Chicago? For some reason, I thought you had been there. Uh, I went to Northwestern Dental School there. I, I did a, an interesting thing there. After dental school, I went into the medical school and went into the area of anesthesia. And so okay. I, I did a full year anesthesia. And there was this concept that we would create a anesthesia, dental anesthesiology program. And I would take that over as a part of the teaching of it in the dental medical schools there. And so I was on my way to doing that. In a way, I have to confide, it was partly as a rebellion to the idea of doing uh, routine general dentistry. Okay. It was not something that I felt highly interested in. So I was more interested in the medical side and the uh, surgery side. But also I was interested in pharmacology and and eventually I did my uh, master's in local anesthesia at Michigan. And so I'm very interested in anesthesia and pain control. While I was doing that year program at Northwestern, to get a full anesthesiology residency at that time was only two years. Oh, wow. That was kind of, you know, kind of interesting. But in the process of doing that, I was working at the VA hospital and I became interested in oral cancer and maxillofacial cancer. And so I was doing all of the head and neck intubations. And at some point they asked me if I wanted to do the tracheostomies because some of these patients had airway, airway problems. Yeah. Well, I started to, on the anesthesia service, started to do trachs. Okay. Prior to, under local, prior to intubation. And uh, I did a number of those, and that was exciting. And, and <laughs> by the way, I've done very few trachs since that, maybe a few in training. <laughs> and okay. never, never in my private practice. But what a wonderful introduction to maxillofacial surgery and airway all throughout my career. I had no, I wouldn't say I had no concern, but I had full confidence that whatever happened airway-wise, I would be able to intubate. If that couldn't happen, I would do a tracheostomy. And uh, and so that's really a, a dynamic part of our training that I received that was, was kind of exciting and cool. That's awesome. It's an invaluable experience. Well, good. What have you been up to lately? What's going on with you? Let me just give you a postscript on that too, because without revealing anything more than talk, and trying to talk in generalities, there was a, a malpractice case, a patient that expired from anterior mandibular dental implant placement. Hmm. Okay. And what happened, and I've seen this in orthognathic surgery where you do uh, genioplasties as well. Yeah. Uh, the doctor went through the lingual plate, got into some vasculature, and it started to swell and fill the floor of the mouth and completely obstructed the patient. And because this was not a oral maxillofacial surgeon, uh, no attempt at intubation and no attempt at uh, tracheostomy was done, and the patient expired. Oh, no. And so I just want to, you know, nurse that thinking 
forward a little bit, that that could happen to any of, any of us. Mm-hmm. What we think is the most simple situations. And uh, so I just want to pass that on to you since uh, we were talking about traits. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's something that's probably not on the radar of a lot of people doing implants, you know. No, no. Uh, but it is important. It is important. In regards to clear choice, how do you refer to yourself? Are you the founder of it? Did you come up with the idea? It's a kind of an interesting situation. The businessman who lived close to me, Don Maloney and Steve Boyd. Yeah. These are very, very prominent businessmen. They're very smart people, but didn't know anything about dental implants. And so they initially had kind of a trial run with some general dentists and so on. And they just couldn't really quite get it off the ground. And so after, I think it was either the fourth or fifth time they came to me, I kept on telling them, no, absolutely not. I consented to help them. And so basically, Clear Choice started in my private office in Cherry Creek on 303 Josephine. It's kind of a historical place now when you think about it, because Clear Choice, I think, is either the fourth or fifth largest dental company in the world. I mean, it's, wow. it's really big. And yeah. by, the way, by the way, yesterday, it was bought again for $1.1 billion by oh Aspen Dental. So now it's become part of Aspen Dental. Wow. Okay. I had the largest implant practice in Colorado and maybe even the Western United States. I had no need to do a single extra implant, but I told them I would help them out. And the very first month of having them come into my office and I was going to try and do them between patients, the volume of that that they sent me was equal to what I was doing in my private practice, a very mature private practice. Okay. It overwhelmed me. I didn't understand. I couldn't get it. And so then we uh, got more and more committed to it, and they developed a business relationship with me. And I hope that we used good conscience, good ethics, good surgical and prosthetic principles in designing this company because I refused to go forward unless we had uh, oral maxillofacial surgeons and prosthodontic specialists. Not that others couldn't do some of this stuff, but mm-hmm. to protect the medical patients that would come in and want anesthesia. We felt like we needed a surgeon, and then the complexity of the prosthetics was such that, sure, there are some practitioners that can do as well as a prosthodontist, but we felt that 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 would be best handled day in and day out by the prosthodontist. So my my biggest contribution to that company was the requirement of specialists to handle it. And because of that, they succeeded in in an amazing way and and revitalized the prosthodontic specialty. Yeah, that's incredible. And so lately, I was kind of just talking to you earlier, you're you're working on a new type of dental implant or what's going on with that? It's hard to turn the brain off when you're in doing something. And I find that what we 
do in oral maxillofacial surgery is very exciting and it's just awesome. It's an awesome specialty. I just love every everything about it. What I noticed though in dental implant work was that sometimes the good efforts that I would do in bone grafting or whatever would be undone by bacteria. And especially later, like two, three, four years later, you might get peri-implantitis and the implant could be lost or the graft could be lost or the aesthetics could be lost. And this really bothered me. And you can blame it on the patients for not brushing their teeth, I guess. But a lot of it has to do with the, the, the foreign device that's in the body it gets that biofilm on it and, and it, it progresses. And significant peri-implantitis probably occurs 8, 9, 10% of the implants that we place. And the incidence of peri-implantitis, you know, where you, we have a beginning of it is, is above 20%. And so it's not an insignificant problem. So about five years ago, because I uh, teach at Hadassah at Hebrew University, I've taught there for about 20 years, because I teach there in the surgery department, I got to know quite a number of the scientists over there. And there was one by the name of Irvin Weiss who uh, ended up being the dean of the dental school at Tel Aviv. He's a prosthodontist and a, bact- a PhD bacteriologist. He developed a nanotechnology in the company's called Nobio, N-O-B-I-O.com. It's a private company. And I decided to invest in that company, and now I'm vice chairman of the board of that company. And we have products that are approved by the FDA, uh, mostly dental adhesives or composites that are coming on the market in January. But it doesn't take much to kind of connect the dots why I might be involved in this company. It's more of a technology that bacteria when it touches this particle that they've developed, the bacteria dies. It disturbs the cell wall, and so it's bactericidal. And it doesn't leach out like a drug or decrease in its efficacy over time. And so the idea is to enhance antimicrobial action on titanium and, and other restorative structures. And that's that's where my interest is, and that's the main reason I started this dental implant company, which is called Ditron, and the, the website is DitronDentalUSA.com. And so what's different about these implants compared to what's currently out there? These implants are the premier implants in the world. That's really something for someone to say that. Uh, when I was going to marry this technology to an implant company, I could choose any implant that I wanted to. And I looked at many all around the world. And there's a company called Ditron Limited in Ashkelon, Israel, that makes the most precision parts in the world for aerospace and the automotive industry. For example, they do the steering mechanisms for Mercedes-Benz and Ferrari and for Formula One cars and so on. And the, reason, the reason they are so excellent is their tolerance between the part, the machine parts is, is the smallest in the world. Mm. It's less than three microns and, 
in the category of one, maybe to two microns. Wow. If you have an abutment that's fitting into an implant and there's only a micron space gap, Mm -hmm. that's too small for bacteria to get. Got it. So P. gingivalis is about two microns, just so you know, which is one of the smallest bacteria. Okay. And that's one of the, one of the agents that causes uh, periodontitis and periodontitis also. And so I wanted to, to have an implant that had the best machining, and that was a very important part. And then there's other design features to it. There's a, a very good surface to it. Uh, the look of it is kind of like a Nobel active implant. The surface of it is kind of like a, uh, it's a double acid edge surface similar to the SLA surface of Stroman. And so you have a very, very good implant. It's had about a 10, 12 year track record, but never been in the US. And so now we're introducing this. And then eventually, as we sell this implant, it's a very good implant now. Eventually, we inc- incorporate new technology a few years down the road once we get it through the FDA. Very nice. That's pretty amazing. They can get it down to just one micron. Incredible technology. Now, if you drive a Tesla, it's in it. If you drive an Austin Martin, that's you're using Ditron steering. Oh, wow. There you go. So Ditron is not... Ditron's fifty-year-old company. It's not. It's not a slouch. So okay, it's a good. It's a good brand name. Very nice. Even though I had heard about a year ago you were having a retirement party, it sounds like you're not retired. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am teaching and trying to do a lot of things. One of them is I went to the University of Utah undergraduate yeah. school. Yeah, and got my my degree there okay so i grew up in salt lake city and so i wanted to give back and so i set up a, a an endowed a chair there under the oral surgery department tissue engineering chair and we're working towards starting a, an oral maxillofacial surgery training program a six-year training program there in salt lake city okay i have been on the board of the dental school there and have tried to work towards that so i'm not out of action and I'm working with people at UCLA and at Harvard and at NYU and that's awesome. And we were just back at Columbia with uh, Dr. Tarnow and who's helping me with the implant uh, company and so I, I'm not out of it completely and I I intend to stay very active in the in the field. Oh that's that's awesome. So great. I was wondering if you could tell me you know, maybe what was one of your most, you know, challenging cases you've had in the last couple of years? I had challenging cases every week and some, some say every day. Okay. <laughs> one of the things, I don't know, is there mostly oral surgeons on the, on the call with you? Yeah. Or, okay. So what happened in, in Colorado and probably happened throughout the world throughout the United States at least, uh, and that is the subtraction of the simple implant case from your practice. Okay. You don't, you don't get them anymore. You get very difficult stuff. 
Yeah. Yeah. They have to reconstruct maybe failed cases or whatever. And so at maybe the last 10, 12 years, I detected that that was the niche that we needed to be in. And I've lectured about that so, so often at Amos and so on. What it is, is it's the wild and crazy cases that no one else would do. So I would go out to the prosthodontists and the GPs that were doing implants sometimes, and I would say, hey, listen, if you have a hard case, send it to me. Don't get yourself in trouble. <laughs> so, and I used to say this about sinus grafting. You don't want to go into the sinus. Yeah. But then they started going into the sinus. <laughs> so then I would say, if you have a tough sinus, send it to me. And so I, in my, there's a long way of answering your question, but in my practice every day, every morning, every afternoon, there was a really hard case. Wow. That's what they were sending my yeah. way. And I also went to other oral surgeons and I also went to periodontists and said the same thing. You know, if you have a case you don't want to do, I'm happy to do it. And, you know, like for example, zygomatic implants, I let everybody know that I like to do zygomatic implants. And there's a lot of people that don't want to do them. Yeah. And probably you shouldn't do them. If you're doing one or two a year, you probably shouldn't right. do right. zygomatic implants. And I can tell you, specific stories why you shouldn't but anyway so i i always had hard stuff going but what made the the cases difficult for me oftentimes were the emotional emotional side of of what people are going through okay and that's the most special part for us um, i'm not sure if ao the Academy of Counselor Integration has my talk when I got the Brandemark Award in 2015. And when you get that award, you can talk about whatever you want for about a half hour. And it was really interesting. What I talked about was the emotionally challenging case. One of the patients that just really, just really got to me and really challenged me and brought me to my limits was a patient who had cerebral palsy. She had knocked out. She was um, not able to communicate. Okay. She could communicate with her parents, sort of. And she had very um, uncontrolled gesticulations and, and so on. And she liked to chew a towel. Mm. So she fell and knocked out a front tooth. And the family, to even examine her, I had to put her on ketamine. <laughs> wow. You know, just to get an exam. The other problem is she had pulmonary disease so that her respiratory reserve was so low. Mm. And my attitude was, let's get a flipper. <laughs> right. These people wanted an implant. So I put an implant in, did the uh, immediate restoration. It torqued in well. And in order to do this, I had to take her to the operating room. And, you know, I was just very happy with it. Yeah. And then she woke, wakes up and she starts biting this towel and pulling. Uh, and she pulled the implant out. Oh, my then gosh. Dang. <laughs> Shoot. 
I told them I would not treat them again. I referred them to another doctor. He, he wouldn't do it. And about six months later, they came back crying and crying and crying. So I did it again. And this time, same kind of result, except when she came back about a week later, the immediate crown had turned 180 degrees. So I was looking at the cervical of the tree. Okay. Anyway, so she eventually pulled that one out too. So I realized that this is not the case for immediate function. Yeah. You got to understand that with someone, you know, I was trying to save a general anesthesia, and that was, that was a mistake. And so I talked about this emotionality, and eventually I did go a third time and treated her and got her taken care of. But that's what makes a hard case. Yeah. When you have a demanding patient, mm-hmm. high or, you know, your heart's going out to, to someone trying to help them, the technical and the medical and all these psychological parts yep. wrapped into one makes it a very difficult case. So I know that doesn't sound very dramatic for a lot of the different things I've done, but uh, when I got my award from AO, I talked about that patient and showed her story. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, I feel the same way, you know, some of those, sometimes the most difficult thing is communication, dealing with people who, like you're saying, you know, pull on your heartstrings, you want to help them. They're, they're trying to push you in a direction that maybe you're not so sure about or, you know, but you kind of agree to do it. Yeah. I mean, th- those are tough cases. The p- patients will ask you things that you shouldn't do. Yeah. And you get tempted. <laughs> right, <laughs> for sure. You know, Flip Wilson used to have a little devil on the shoulder. You don't listen to that. But I remember once a very old individual, maybe he was 85 or so, and got stage four lung cancer. Okay. And was expected to live weeks, maybe a few months. Wow. He had all of his teeth, but he came in. He said, I'd like to have implants. I'd like to have all my teeth out and implants in place. Okay. Now, think about this. Think about the discussion that we have. And I eventually told him, you know, you don't need to do that. You're a beautiful man. Enjoy your family. Yep. Not to be having you suffering the last few weeks. And Anyway, but... That's the kind of stuff patients will do to you and just you just have to Absolutely. Keep the keep down the straight and narrow. Yeah, for sure. You have been a tremendous uh, support of the profession. You've given back so much. You've taught a lot. You know, what are your words of advice or words of wisdom, suggestions for young surgeons who you know, are kind of in the thick of it, working eight to five, trying to support their family, stuff like that. How can we give back, you know, if we're in this setting where we're ultra busy, but still wanting to kind of give back to the profession like you do? Yeah, that's kind of an emotional or even spiritual question. You know, your foundation as a surgeon has to really be 
solid. You can't allow yourself to think about money. And you can't allow yourself to think about fame. Mm -hmm. And you can't allow yourself to think about ego. And a lot of us are men, and we have a tendency to a little bit to put our foot on the accelerator and and race around the corner, you know. And, right. And so we, we have to really be careful. And so I have to admit I have had times when I've succumbed to those things when I'm reading my own press releases, so to speak. And so what happened one time, I had a fellowship where people would come to certainly would come and work with me for a year. And during that year, they would do more than a thousand implants. Wow. So it's a great, it's a great way to kind of get going. Yeah. And uh, my first fellow was Robert McGuiris, who now practices in uh, Philadelphia, a very excellent person. He gave me the Rambam. The Rambam is Maimonides' prayer surgeon's prayer or doctor's prayer. Okay. And I have it on my wall. I've got it sitting right right here. So maybe I'll pull it down. Hold on. Okay. It's one side's in English and one side's in Hebrew. I'll just read the first couple sentences. Okay. But, but remember you're asking me my advice to surgeons and I'm now I'm talking about themselves. You need to be solid in your own in your own self. Yeah. Here's what Maimonides said. Supreme God in heaven, before I begin my holy work to heal the human beings whom your hands form, I pour out my entreaty before your throne of glory that you grant me the strength of spirit and great courage to do my work faithfully and that the ambition to amass riches or goodness shall not blind my eyes from seeing rightly. Hmm. And then it goes on. And so what you want to do, and if any of you have ever gotten involved in the, the American board, or I was an examiner for many years there, one of the things we do when we question candidates is to really find out what's in their heart, what they're really trying to do. And, and basically the test is, are you going to propose something that is in the best interest of the patient? Yeah. Are you doing it for you, your Austin Martin, or are you doing it for, for for the patient? Yeah. This is going to come back to you in just tremendously. You'll be a very successful person if you're always thinking about what's best for the patient. And that will go a long, long ways to your success. For sure. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Probably easier said than done, but it's almost like if you get that in the right order, you know, the money follows. If you treat the patient right, then that's the secondary result that usually comes. I mean, pretty incredible that you sought out the difficult cases. You know, mo most surgeons are trying to avoid the difficult things. And it seemed like you embraced conflict and, and struggles. And I'm sure it was tough, but probably rewarding. Is that correct? Yeah, I never, yes. I never thought there was something that 
it was rare that there wasn't something that I was doing that I didn't think I could do. Okay. You know, most of us will see a tooth that needs to come out. We don't really think we're not going to be able to get that tooth out. Right, right. right. You know, yeah, there could be one or two or something like that, but most of the time it's just, you just do it. And that, that's the way I felt with implants. And, you know, I, I wrote many, many publications and the underlying theme of all of them is to help doctors to solve problems, solve the difficult problems. Yeah. And all those, all those articles I wrote about, all I'm for, mm-hmm. it's just to help people not make mistakes, to really, you know, do the best for patients. That's, that's what it's all about. Yeah, for sure. Totally agree. Really appreciate you sharing all that stuff. I remember, so I trained in Chicago and I remember going to the veterans hospital there and a lot of the doctors would quote some of your work and and talk about some of the things you had done in that area. And that was pretty cool for me to finally meet you and talk to you as well in this podcast. But anyhow, I really appreciate you taking the time. Is there anything else, any other words of wisdom you have for our listeners? You know, I I sent you a, a line drawing. Can you pull it up or do you have it? Yeah. I just wanted to mention one thing I'm working on right now. Yeah. A paper, a paper I'm going to put in for publication. Okay. Something has changed in implant dentistry that's pretty significant, and that is the need for putting in long implants. The idea really but the way implants are made now and the way we do techniques and so on, it looks to me like the optimal implant size might be, in terms of length, might be eight millimeters. Okay. This is a rather remarkable thing to say because I would say most of my career I've done 11, 12, 13 millimeter implants, maybe some tens. Yeah. And now we're we're starting to gravitate down to less than 10 millimeters. Hmm. And this paper I'm writing talks about six millimeters. Hmm. Okay. Six millimeter implant is pretty equivalent to what we once thought of as a 10 millimeter implant. So that should change the way we look at patients, the need, the requirement for grafting. Yeah. When I wrote this paper, there are many, many articles that review that, even consensus conferences. And so I would just say that maybe this is something that each of us in our practice would need to look at and decide, hey, do we need to graft that five millimeters so that we can put a 13 millimeter implant in and instead maybe put a seven or eight millimeter implant? Maybe that's, that, that will suffice. Yeah, that definitely changes things, especially when you have the mindset of, you know, I've got to get at least a 9 or 10 millimeter in there. Yeah, now we're talking about the optimal length is 8. Yeah. You don't, you don't need to get to 10. That, that's, a, that's a pretty big deal that's not realized in the field, in, the, in practice yet. And so I just mentioned it. Okay. Well, that's terrific. Thank you for bringing that up. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know in the in the past when we had lunch together, I talked to you a little bit about your son's fair because he's a good friend of mine. 
a role model and he's just such a charismatic guy. And we had talked a little bit about, you know, your, your children following in the footsteps or not following, but sometimes I struggle with that. You know, I, talking to my kids about, you know, should, should I kind of groom them to become dentists and oral surgeons? Certainly I don't want them to be ashamed or think, think that I would think less of them if they did some other profession, but you know, what, what are your comments there with seeing your kids grow up and go into different professions? I'm very happy with what they've all done. I don't think that there should be that much guidance into a certain field of endeavor that's fraught with danger. You might actually make a mistake and you just don't want to have your hang up end up being your, your child's hang up. Right. Now, for, for example, sports people do this, you know, maybe, maybe they're a great football player and they want their child to be a, you know, a fullback or something. And right. Maybe they want to be an artist or something different. And yeah. And so, we should be really careful in raising our children and looking at them horizontally mm-hmm. and vertically. Yeah. Even though they're six years old, they're your equal. You're not better than them. Right. You know, you're in charge because you're an adult. Yeah. But, um, what's, what is in their heart is as, as important as what is in your heart. So remember that. I agree. Thank you. Wise words. Well, thank you so much for sharing. All right. Well, that's all I have for today. Did you have anything else you wanted to talk about? No, I, I'm proud of you for doing this kind of work. Uh, we need communication. Isolation is the worst thing you can do. Yeah. Go, go to meetings, have your own study clubs, be active, don't sit alone in your office and figure it out on your own. You can't do it. Yep. You can't do it. Uh, there's too much good stuff out there. Participate with it. Come to the banquet and eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's exactly why I'm doing this. I mean, I, of course, I get a lot of you know understanding and wisdom from the, the papers and things I read online, but so much great information I've gleaned from colleagues and you know, other surgeons just just talking to them at meetings or what what have you with with their experiences with different patients. So I thought it'd be cool to provide this forum. You know, one of and share too, one of the things that happened in Colorado. So I wrote some articles about the sinus graft and no one was doing it. Okay. And so I said, come to my office. I will show you how to do it. Other surgeons, other anything, anybody. And so they came, and sure, they're your competitors and your whatever. Right. It made a collegial environment, and and it was just a a wonderful thing to build friendships. And so share, you'll know some things. Share, feel free to share it with your colleagues and, and and don't be jealous about what you what you found out. Yeah, it benefits all of us if we go about things in a friendly way and, and we talk more than, than we hide. So for sure, a great thing. I appreciate you, and I'll let you get back to your afternoon, but thanks for taking the time. 
Thank you. Talk to you later. See y'all. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery, Surgeon's Talking Shop. If you are practicing oral surgery or in the oral surgery field and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or feel free to text me or call me at 720-775-5843. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed or any feedback on certain episodes that have already aired, I would love for you to call or email me. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you in the next episode.